there's just so much female leadership in our communities that if we can convert into a political arena, could make quite a significant difference to our country. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Lysia Heath, the CEO of Women for Election Australia, a not-for-profit organisation which aims to increase the number of women in politics across all levels of government and all parties. And can I just say, if the mere mention of politics is normally enough to make you switch off, I really encourage you to keep listening. Lysia did not start out her career in politics, and her perspective on the state of politics in Australia and how women can help change it is very refreshing and very real. Lysia even had a tilt for office herself, running as an independent in the hotly contested Wentworth by-election in 2018, after then-Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was turfed as leader of the Liberal Party for the second time. That experience fuelled her commitment to help more women in Australia learn how to run for office and to encourage women from all backgrounds to get involved in the political process, to be that change many of us are looking for. Here's my chat with Lysia Heath. So, Lysia, you've had a few different chapters in your career, but I wanted to start with what you were doing prior to politics. Uh, Your campaign website mentions corporate job, mother of two, community volunteer and director of two startups. That's quite a lineup. So let's start with the corporate job. What were you doing in the corporate world? I'd spent about 19 years in financial services and specifically in asset management, so funds management and things like that. I started my career back of house, so more at the analyst side, but progressed to what we call front of house, which is more of um, a sales role and uh, strategic roles within sales teams, our clients being things like super funds and financial planners. So that's how I'd spent my about 19 years of my career and and it was fabulous. And what did a typical work day look like for you back then? Walking the streets with a compendium under my arm, uh, you know, having six meetings a day, going into different offices and, and talking at boardroom tables or to super funds about how their investments looked and what they were looking for for their clients, the type of client bases they had and how we might be able to fit with it. Okay. Um, And what did you enjoy about working in the finance sector? That particular part of the finance sector, I enjoyed the variety of it, definitely. So being out and about. uh, I don't want it to sound sound silly at all, but I, I felt like I was making a difference, as in I had trust in the financial vehicles we had and we were going in and, and knew exactly what they could achieve with the right clients. So I liked going in and, and being able to provide that service So and, and many other things as well. But financial services is, obvious, is often bunched into the same thing, but it's there's lots of different derivatives of it. Right. So, look, you ended up working in finance, as you said, for nearly 20 years, but you also started your own business during that time. In fact, your bio mentions two startups. So what were those businesses and what had prompted you to go out on your own? They're two businesses that my husband had kicked off. Uh, Well, one of 
them by himself and another with a partner. So we were, and I'd had experience with leaving the big financial institutions and then being part of building a financial services business myself. So I felt that my life in big institutions had finished and I liked the the idea of starting from scratch, building from that point. And, you know, I think I've never had this direct conversation with my husband, but he saw me do that and then went on a similar path, I think. Mm-hmm. So me being a director on my husband's startup uh, in mostly in the insurance world has been fantastic. And now we both work at home full time, totally different to our life even three years ago where we were both utterly in the corporate rat race, dropping children at daycare, aftercare for school, repeat. And it was something that I um, I had come to a point that I could not do anymore and I took a, a sabbatical, a, a year sabbatical, and and a lot of the formulations of the startups came through having some clear air in my head. And actually the the outworkings of that as, as well was being more involved in the school and our children, and our children have definitely benefited through that. But that is a luxury that not everyone can take equally. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you about your boys. I know you're a mum of two boys. Mm-hmm. How old are they now? They're now seven and 11. Right. I mean, you've talked a little bit about how you've melded work and family life, but can you talk a little bit about what your family life looks like and perhaps how that has influenced your work life? The the life is so much different. Uh, my husband and I were just thinking about this earlier this week, uh, how we can walk our boys to school and and be at home when they get home. It's had a marked effect on particularly our older boy who at one point was struggling quite a lot at school and we didn't know that. Right. And it was only through kind of um, dialing the crazy corporate life back a little bit that we, we got a bit of visibility on that and, and could assist. And I think he's a different boy now as a consequence, which is lovely and also gets you in the guts every now and then when you think about it. But in terms of being able to uh, have flexibility, that's the difference. So before coming to join you for this podcast, I've been at an awards day at school, which I just wasn't attending, wasn't mm-hmm. attending for for years right. really. So um, so I can must feel good. <laughs> it does feel good and it feels good for the kids and other parents see us do it too now and they've been on similar journeys and or other kids see it too and I know that a parent's absent so I say I take photos for that parent of their child getting an award and send it off and it's just a, a lovely dynamic and, and absolutely no one is in a hurry to get back to that uh, skyscraper CBD role. <laughs> Well, you have also been quite active in the community for a number of years. In fact, in 2016, you started a campaign for a new public high school in Sydney's eastern suburbs, mm. which, you know, being a fairly wealthy area is probably more known for its private schools. Why did public schooling become such a focus for you? I've always been a public 
education advocate and uh, I will I will never be shifted on the fact that uh, a very big part of the the change um, the inequality chasm that is occurring in our country is based on the fact that uh, we increasingly are spending more public money on private schools and and the knock-on effects of that is profound. In Wentworth, the federal electorate where I happen to live, there's 15 private schools and one high school. Wow. There used to be more uh, public high schools, but they, they got shut down in basically in the 90s, which is the same thing that happened in, in uh, Melbourne and Brisbane. You know, people were having one child and they were tending to send their child to private school, uh, which cost eight grand a year. And, you know, decisions were made, governments were in the red, so let's sell these assets. It was a it was an eight-year trend. <laughs> a lot of those assets ended up having apartments on them or residences, which means that, it, you know, 20 years down the track, it's been a massively compounding issue. So we have denser areas and less yeah. school spaces. Uh, where I live, there's... Uh, space is at a premium. Mm. So just starting a new school like that is is a massively challenging aspect. But in any even in wealthy areas, you just can't assume that people can afford to send their children to private school. And secondly, they may not want to. We don't want to. We we want to support public education. Uh, but it's hard to if there's none around. Yeah. It's a pretty basic starting point, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So that campaign is keeps going and um, has a you know has a few thousand people following it now, which is great. which is great. And we will have success. It's just about how over what time frame, right? I think it was in 2017 you joined the board of a not for profit group called Women for Election Australia. Can you tell us a bit about Women for Election and how you came to be involved with them? I was an attendee. I was a punter in the stands at their <laughs> first ever event, right. which was held at New South Wales Parliament House. It was in August 2017. It was the year I was having my sabbatical. So uh, I had more freedom than I would normally have been able to have. I sat there from basically 8.30 to 5, hearing retired female politicians, existing female politicians, uh, I participated in an event called the World Cafe where uh, current female MPs kind of spilled out of the chamber and spent time at each of the tables with us in a speed dating kind of scenario. And I was hearing such positive stories about their experience, their contribution, uh, and why they wanted more women to be around them. I was thinking, why don't I ever hear these stories? Uh, I only ever hear hear the negative and it really, it fizzed me up to the point that I went to the um, chair and founder of the group, Jenny Morris, and said, look, is how, how can I be involved? Do you, you're volunteer-based. And she actually said in a few months a board position will be coming open right. and put yourself forward for that. So, And what were you doing as a board member? Uh, involving myself with strategy for the group. Uh, how to expand, but also being part of the uh, event management in terms of the curriculum for the for the events. So 
the whole idea behind women for election is to make what is currently a very opaque process, which is how you would get involved in politics and even potentially run more transparent Mm. on the basis that the more transparent it is, the more accessible it is, and the more people get themselves involved in the process, particularly women. There's Mm. umpteen studies about how women tend to need more information than men before they would step forward into a position. And that's not going to be any less likely in something like politics. So when we work out what we run at our workshops or our events, being on the board along with eight other very capable people determining what speakers we get, what skill sets are needed and how we then get that involved in a curriculum through a year. Mm. We'll talk a little bit more about women for election in a moment, but I wanted to come to now. So all of that was really going on for you when a moment came in August 2018 that the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was suddenly ousted from the Liberal leadership and a federal by-election was called in your electorate of Wentworth. Do you remember where you were when you heard that news and what was it that made you think, maybe I should have a crack at this? (laughs) I do remember where I was because it was my birthday. All right. (laughs) It was August 24th and I was having 18 people at a dinner party somewhere in Potts Point and it was the only conversation of everyone there just saying, have you heard the news? Because it's about 6pm by that stage and you know, Prime Minister's had a bullet put in him and, you know, what next? And it was it was quite an amazing experience because I had been attending all these Women for Election events and I had thought in my mind, this is something that I want to do at some point, whether that's in three years, six years, 12 years, I don't know, but I'm gathering information now for, for when I do it. Then this scenario happened in my own seat and all the stuff was flashing in my mind about every speaker we'd ever had at our events, be they retired or current female politicians, and they kept emphasising over and over and over these two things. Timing is everything. If you're going to do this, timing is everything. And you will never feel ready. Step forward anyway. Those were the two messages all the time. And then I remember having a conversation with my husband saying, am I ever going to live in a seat again, which firstly has been presided over by a prime minister that then so is dumped so unceremoniously. Uh, And it's a by-election, so it's not even a general election. So that's where the timing element comes into it as well, that a lot more by-election scenarios is where a lot more disruption happens typically. And this was going to be a particularly high-profile by-election. I did not have the insight about how how high-profile it was going to be exactly. <laughs> but it was all that information that had been in my brain. If I had not attended those events, I would not have put myself forward. Mm. It, it really is that simple. And how quickly did you have to make the decision? Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Like that night? <laughs> well, well, within within basically 76 hours, really. Wow. And I, I laugh about it saying, you know, my six-year plan got squished into six weeks is what happened. I definitely wasn't ready. <laughs> no question. I was not ready. 
but I had enough people around me that said, if it's the difference between you not having a team and the diff- and you doing this, I'll be part of the team. Like, right. And so we had a couple of emergency meetings with maybe eight of eight close friends around my dining room table. Someone said, I'll be a social media, I'll be a fundraiser, I'll be a policy person, you know, I'll be a driver. Uh, <laughs> and and it was formed out of that. And you ended up deciding to run as an independent rather than aligning with a party. Why did you decide to do that and what are some of the pros and cons of running as an independent? It, it, I mean, it was a decision that was quite easy in the end. Firstly, I didn't feel like I aligned with a party. Secondly, because it comes out of the blue like that, then if you're going to run for a major party, typically you need to be involved with that party for some time, for some tenure. Not always the case, but you would want to have a a profile with a major party if you were going to run. There's a lot of pros and there's a lot of cons. Um, Let's start with the pros first. You are unencumbered in terms of policy. That's that's got to be the biggest pro. Well, it was for me. I knew what my values were. I knew how that translated in terms of policy. I didn't have anybody barking over the back of me about how it should be done. One of the cons is I didn't have any help with how it should be done. Right. <laughs> so uh, so you just got to work out which, which road you are going to you are going to walk and and you stick with it. So if you're with a major party, there's an existing infrastructure that you can, or a minor party for that matter, that you can plug into the spine of that infrastructure, whether it be policy development, assistance with social media, assistance with printing, all of that kind of stuff. So, so then cost is another one as well. As an independent, I bore that cost, albeit that I... Um, raised a bit of money, but most of it was was my cost. And you mentioned um, that it was a particularly high-profile campaign, <laughs> which for someone who hadn't been in politics previously must have been quite a surreal experience in some ways. I mean, I'm imagining you wouldn't have done a ton of media before or, you know, been out shaking hands <laughs> in the community, maybe a little bit with your community organising work. But are there any particular moments that have really stuck with you from the campaign? Yes, there certainly there certainly are. Look, the the biggest one was the Tuesday night before the Saturday election. I was part of a candidate forum put on by the Jewish Board of Deputies. And there were 16 candidates in the by-election, but only four got invited to that. So that was Dave Sharma, Karen Phelps, myself and Tim Murray. So Labor Liberal and two independents. That morning, the Prime Minister had made an announcement about a review of the embassy moving from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and that changed that candidate forum from being in a hall that could take a capacity of about 300 people to being standing room only, maybe maybe more like 800 people in the room, and it was flanked with international press. So... I will never forget that event. It certainly changed uh, in a sh- such short amount of time the profile that I had and was given and the pressure I felt to be across all the topics 
of um, Iranian proliferation and UN General Assembly issues in terms of Israel. Uh, I had many, many friends in the audience that were sitting in front of me that had been coaching me for the seven (laughs) hours beforehand. But that was an amazing experience. And I forged extraordinary relationships out the back of that, actually, where people came up to me and said, well done. You didn't have to do that, but you came along anyway. And it's massively impressive. And having you be on the stage just made the others have to be better. Mm. And it ratified something with me that I talk about all the time now with with the women that attend our events and and those that don't, that come up to me and say, oh, you must have been really disappointed that you didn't win after all that effort. And I say, no, not at all. I have full visibility about how my participation in that six weeks changed the debate and the outcome as well. So there's a lot of definitions of win Uh, And I think that's a a massive win. So even being part of the process changes the outcome. So I think that's a really important message Mm. and and something that I try to talk about till I'm blue in the face to as many people that will listen as well. (laughs) Well, yeah, I was going to ask you that at the end of what I'm sure was a very intense six weeks, Karen Phelps was the ultimate um, winner or claimed victory in that Mm -hmm. by-election. I mean, how did you feel about the result? And you've mentioned a little bit about what you gained from the experience, but what were some of the key lessons learned? It was amazing watching a whole electorate activate before my eyes. So again, 110 years with one party, forget who the party was, it's irrelevant. It's that when people engage, you can get a result. And so we saw that there and I was very happy with the result and it would have been nice to see Karen hold as well. She only had six months to be able to kind of um, prove herself, which I I think was just a bit problematic. But at the end of the day, watching everybody activate, watching a community come together, if I could have bottled that spirit during that by-election, I would have loved to. But it shows me what can be and that that gives me a lot of hope actually. It was fantastic. Wow, so a big six weeks in your life. <laughs> yes. And you haven't completely left politics behind. I guess uh, that was just over a year ago. And since the campaign, you've taken on a new role as the CEO of Women for Election, which, as we discussed earlier, is all about helping more women learn how to run for office and get elected. I mean, firstly, why do we need more women to run for office? Well, we need a more representative parliament of the of the population it governs. So Women for Election is focused on on getting more women in our legislatures, but I think the the representation is the the key piece there. So at the federal level, 30% of our of our parliament is women at the moment. The population makes up 51% of women. And that different lived experience brings an amazing, I think, clarity and uh, ability to execute on a broader set of policies as well. So 
you know, I can pull pull down umpteen numbers of research that shows when gender parity is is reached in a parliamentary chamber, what the results are. And the results are typically things like more cross-party collaboration, the ability to compromise more in order to get policy through. Uh, women are shown to be more visible out in their electorates, so typically people feel well represented. And also a lot of research shows that women will tend to want to talk about a broader set of policies. So rather than um, I think about the last federal election, things like the economy and asylum seekers, it ends up being a, a lot broader. So talking about superannuation reform, tax reform, education, health, parental leave, aged care. So when the policies broaden like that and there's a greater willingness to look at different solutions about how you can get those policies enacted as well, typically you then tend to find that the a greater percentage of the community of a country benefits as well. Mm. So, you know, there's more than one reason, uh, but the the, con- the the things I keep hearing about are, you know, trust deficit. People are less and less trusting of their governments. They're feeling less and less represented. Mm. They're hating the adversarial nature. They're hating that the parties aren't collaborating. All of that gets addressed when we have a representative parliament of the population. Right. And I guess one of the issues, though, is, you know, there's a pretty big job to be done to turn around this idea that many people have and and many women in particular, which is, you know, I could never be a politician or perhaps I would never want to be a politician. Mm. Um, You know, we see a lot of toxic stories in the news. We know a lot of the bad stuff. Uh, But having been to one of the Women for Election events, what I found really interesting was hearing from women across the political spectrum about why they were driven to enter politics because most of them talked about it genuinely feeling like a place they could make a difference. Um, You know, people had different causes or issues that they were hoping to address, but there was such a sense of purpose. And I think that gets lost in the fray of the negative media that we tend to be surrounded by. Can you talk a bit about, um, you know, what what you've heard women talk about at these events that we may not hear about in the media? Look, that's it was hearing those stories that got me on this journey as well. So the the idea that these women cross party are getting together behind the scenes when something's getting blocked to see how that they can get it through. What are, the fact that there's a WhatsApp group for all the women in the chamber cross-party as a kind of support mechanism. Like, why don't we hear more of that? That's wonderful. And it makes people feel more inspired and also exhale a little bit about, oh, maybe it's not as horrendous as I, you know, as I am led to believe. I say it all the time. I think the biggest trick the devil ever played is making people believe that if you want to get something done, don't go into politics. Much easier to get something done outside. Rubbish. It's absolute garbage. If you want something done, be at the table to help fashion how it looks and then execute on it. Mm. Uh, and it's one of the things that motivated me through running the campaign, my school's campaign as well, that 
uh, or when I speak at universities or with or with young girls who are so so politically engaged, but they're engaged at the issue level. So they're in environmental marches, they're in abortion reform marches, they're doing, they're marching on Canberra with their placards, and then the same faces are looking back at them saying, thank you for your community spirit, mine, we'll take on board what you're thinking, go away. Mm. So I got to a point where I realised, actually, until those faces are different, we're not going to get movement on this. Yeah. So... That element of driving, how do we connect, how do we reconnect this purpose with parliament? And that's part of our mission and why I was so happy to be part of this podcast because the more that we can shine a light on those positive stories, the more likely that women uh, will get involved Mm. because they're often driven by purpose, but they're skewed to go down, well, do something for free in your community run a campaign, be in charge of that fundraising for that, be in in charge of sports or scouts or whatever it happens to be. It keeps very noble being part of all of that and it's all done pro bono and it's all um, for a greater cause. But it also keeps women out of the political spectrum and they could be so involved and they have nine-tenths of the skills as well. So if you're a community leader out in the drought-affected or bushfire areas now, I see women leaders out there checking in on their neighbours, helping them, fundraising for them, going and presenting at councils about how they need to do more effective water drops to make sure that this doesn't happen again. They're doing nine-tenths of what a great political representative should be doing. Uh, women for election can help them with that one-tenth so that they can get their shoulders back and go, actually, maybe I can do this. Mm. But there's just so much female leadership in our communities that if we can convert into a political arena could make quite a significant difference to our country. And, I mean, talking about the skills that you need, I think, you know, there's also probably a perception of, what kind of background you do need to become a politician. I mean, I think the other thing I learned about being at one of the Women for Election events was that, you know, women might have come from 20 years as a palliative care nurse and gone into politics or, you know, in Zali's case, being an Olympic athlete. (laughs) We may not all have that in our backgrounds, but, I mean, could you just, could you literally come to politics from any background? Absolutely. In fact, we need you to. That's the lived experience that's, so, so valuable. Um, Let's flip it on its head. Are you happy for our parliament if everybody on the front bench on both sides of politics all has their kids in private school? Are you happy for them to be swinging for public education funding? So that diversity of experience is what is so critical. If you've had experience with Centrelink before or aged care or superannuation or nursing or teaching, you have an extraordinary base of which to draw on to then understand about how things can be improved. One of the big issues that we have in our current political landscape 
I've I've heard John Howard talk about this as a concern. I've heard Julia Gillard talk about this as a concern. Is the lack of lived experience with our politicians currently. So too many have come up through the same route. Student politics, political staffer, union or lawyer and into parliament. And we're all the poorer for that lack of diversity and that lack of diverse experience in in our legislatures. So absolutely, uh, no matter what your background is, understanding how the process works in terms of how you would run for government and understanding how your skill set parlays into that is is really is critical. Okay, well, I wanted to just talk a bit about some of the women you look to. Um, I mean, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is someone who gets brought up a lot as the leader we wish we had in Australia, and she's amazing. But we definitely have some inspiring women in politics here in Australia too. Who are some of the women who inspire you? I was so lucky to be able to co-host an event with Julia Gillard last week and many people learnt a lot of things through her prime ministership, I think. Some learnt them during the time, some learnt them after the fact and that was a lot about how she may have been viewed by them through a gender lens. But, it, you know, it cannot be denied that she she was leading a minority government. There had not been a hung parliament for, I think it was... 60 years before that. And in that environment, she managed to push through nearly 500 pieces of legislation, including some absolutely monstrous things like the NDIS and Royal Commission into Institutionalised Child Sexual Abuse, um, Gonski reforms and, and more. So I was, she is definitely somebody that I looked up to. Uh, and I feel is a missed opportunity for our country in some ways because obviously her negotiation skills were <laughs> unparalleled. Mm, and that we, doesn't really make the news, does it, all those? <laughs> there were so many other well, things going on at that time, but those achievements are the things that we miss out often on either hearing about or having it emphasised to us. Exactly, and I think one of the frustrations that I hear over and over is how um, how stymied we are in terms of uh, policy currently. So what has been put in place since her departure in 2013 doesn't stack up with what she achieved in three years. You know, we still don't have an energy policy, for example. So, mm. um, so yes, she she is somebody that I definitely look up to and, and I hope that she's still part, and she is part of still the policy framework through the work she's now doing at King's College and as chair of Beyond Blue. Mm. Well, look, we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast, and I'd say a lot of women would think it takes a pretty brave person to put themselves in the running to get elected. How did you find the courage to put yourself out there and to stand up for what you believe in, and what tips can you offer other women who might be wanting to do the same? The courage came from having great people around me with two hands firmly in my back. <laughs> Uh, and they gave me confidence. I knew that I didn't have to do it all by myself. So that made 
a, a very big distance and I trusted these people Im- implicitly. I wouldn't have had the courage if I had not understood uh, more about the process through attending those women for election events myself. I mean, that is just the reality of the situation. I had a better idea of uh, how preferences worked, uh, what legislation was at the federal level, for example, versus at the state level, how you got out and about, how you faced the media, how you could use social media, all those campaigning essentials uh, I had knowledge on. But I didn't start from nowhere either. So I had been running a community campaign in the area for a couple of years. I had a bit of a profile in the area as a consequence. I had presented at council meetings. I had met with the local state rep MPs uh, and I had helped formulate questions for budget estimates and things like that specific to our campaign. So I didn't come from nowhere. So I think that's the seed that I like to plant in people's heads saying, if this is something you think you want to do in a few years' time, start the process now. Sit in the gallery at the council meeting, understand who your local representatives are, get a champion or a mentor, volunteer on some campaigns. You learn so much through that. Uh, and with the knowledge comes the courage and and surround yourself with people that positively want to see more women in in politics and would assist you as well. Even being part of a PNC is a massively positive training ground for for politics. Mm. Uh, so I encourage people to start that process now and you will find the courage comes. Great. And what's next for you and for Women for Election? Oh, there's so much that we want to do. We, we've we been very Sydney-focused. Uh, we had our first ever event in Canberra a fortnight ago, which was sold out uh, and was a wonderful experience. And we have about 350 alumni from our events now, some who are absolutely ready to run next week and some who are gathering information for 10 years' time or some that have total clarity now that they they don't want to run but they definitely want to help another woman have success running So, and they know the skill sets that are needed for that. We would love to start moving nationally. So uh, election cycles are part of how we work out our events. So we're, we're not quite as far away from a federal election as we can be but about as close as, as that. So different states moving into election mode, same with council elections, so local government elections. We've got unsolicited calls from people in Fremantle, Echuca, Gold Coast, Townsville, Armadale, Wagga, saying, when are you coming to us? I can can get 12 women around a boardroom table tomorrow. When are you going to come? We just don't quite have the capacity to do that yet. So Uh, you know, I'm working towards making sure that can happen. If anyone is listening to this podcast and wants us in their area, please, you know, get in touch. We, we will prioritize according 
to that, but I am getting the sense that more and more women are mobilizing in Australia, which is fantastic, and we want to be a part of that. Well, that's brilliant. Well, we'll have more information on Women for Election in the show notes. So if anyone listening is interested to find out more, um, you can go to the website and we'll have all the links there. But thank you so much for your time today, Lysia. Thank you, Jackie. It's fantastic. That was Lysia Heath, CEO of Women for Election Australia, which you can find at wfea.org.au. There's information in the show notes on how you can support WFEA or get involved in one of their next events. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.